0: asked a question that I would never in my wildest dreams have ever imagined myself being asked, at least not until after my kids had left home. I was at a Christmas party with some friends, and I was sitting at a table, and we were talking small talk, and at this table was a young 25-year-old man who was leaving youth ministry missionary work and taking his first pastorate. And he was to begin preaching at the 1st of January, this this last January, and he was, to, he was in the process of moving all of his family, his wife, he had no kids, but his wife and all of their possessions, over to western Washington where they were going to take a small church in a small town way up in the sticks. This was his ver- very first pastorate. And I asked him how things were going and he said that the church was excited about having him. They were excited, but there was this certain degree of fear and trembling, trepidation over the prospect of starting off something like this, and I think that that's a good thing. If you're fearful and trembling over the right things, then fear and trembling is a good thing when you're about ready to start on a new ministry. And so I asked him how things were going and all of that, and he told me, and then he kind of paused and he sort of leaned over the table at me and looked at me and he said, can I ask you a question? I said, sure. What advice do you have for a young pastor going into ministry? Young pastor? I am a young pastor. Did my hair just turn gray or something? And I he was asking not because he thought I was old, but because I began younger than I am today. I was twenty four when I started pastoring. He was twenty five or is twenty five and he's starting. And he simply wanted to know, what would you tell me? What, what can I, what do I need to know going into this? What advice would you have? And it's a good question, and I understand why he asked the question, and I'm glad he asked the question, because it betrays the fact that he understands that if you're going to finish well in ministry, you've got to begin well. You've got to start out on the right foot, you've got to start out well, and you have to progress well, if you're going to be able at the end of your life in ministry to say, I have fought the good fight, I have finished my course, I have kept the faith, and there is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all those who have loved His appearing. Those are not my words, those are the words of the Apostle Paul. And writing to Timothy in 2 Timothy chapter 4, the Apostle Paul, expecting his execution at any imminent moment, said, I've done it i finished my course, I've kept the faith, I've fought the fight, and now the time of my departure has come. And there is laid up for me that crown, that righteousness, which the Lord is going to give to me and to all those who love His appearing. i finished well, Timothy, that's what Paul was saying. Paul could only finish well because he began well. And it is far easier to start off on the right foot, to start off with the right method, to begin with the right thinking and philosophy and approach and message than it is to begin poorly and then try and take that shipwreck that you've started and rebuild it while you progress toward the goal and still finish well. It's kind of like running a race. You line up all the racers for the 100 meter dash and that gun goes off and if the racer does not start well from the very get-go, they're behind And then they have to catch up. And it's not impossible, but it's extremely difficult to finish well having started poorly. Just like in a football game. I know it's not football season, but I can use a football illustration. When those two coaches step out on that field, each one of them wants to do the same thing. They want to score fast and they want to score first. Why? So they can start well. And then they can set the tempo. They can set the momentum. They can control the game. They've got the advantage. But if you don't start well, then you've got to try and make up for lost ground and still finish well. And it's difficult. Not impossible, but extremely difficult. The Apostle Paul finished well. You know why he finished well? Because he started off on the right foot. He started his ministry well. Friends, do you want to be able to say at the end of your life and at the end of your ministry, I fought the good fight, I finished the course, and I've kept the faith? I have done, I have fulfilled my ministry, I have done what the Lord has asked me to do, I have been faithful, I have discharged my duties, and I am ready to leave. Or do you want to get to the end of your life and say, I do not know if I will stand in the presence of God and hear Him say, well done good and faithful servant. I do not know if I will stand in the presence of God and be ashamed at Him for all that I have done and all that I have left undone. What would you rather have? You want to finish well? You got to start well we have watched or we have seen how the Holy Spirit called Paul and Barnabas into ministry. And now in these opening verses of Acts chapter 13, as they begin their missionary journey, Dr. Luke introduces us to really two things that characterize the Apostle Paul and would continue to characterize him all the way through the book of Acts. Whether it is his first missionary journey, or his second missionary journey, or his third missionary journey, or his one-way trip to Rome and all of the subsequent and all of the included trials and tribulations that accompanied all of that, there were two things that always marked the Apostle Paul. He started off, he continued with, and he finished on the right message and the right method. doesn't matter what he was doing, doesn't matter what city he went into, he had the right message and he had the right method. Acts chapter 13, beginning in verse 4, we're going to look at his message first. Acts 13, verse 4. Dr. Luke says, "...being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia." Now, you remember back in verse 3, it says that the church sent them out. Verse 4, Luke brings our thinking and our mind back to the reality that this was all the doing of the Holy Spirit. There are two different words that are translated sent out. One in verse 3 and one in verse 4. They're different words. The word in verse 3 literally means to release. The Holy Spirit said, "...set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the ministry to which I have called them." And the church... Let them go. They released them. They cut the strings. They let them sail. They got rid of them. They said, if this is what the Lord is wanting you to do, then we will free you up to do it. Go. That's what the church did. Now, verse 4, Luke wants us to understand this was not the instigation of the church, nor was this the church's idea or the leadership's idea, and it wasn't a volunteer effort. It was the Spirit of God that sent them out. It was the Holy Spirit that instigated this whole thing. I think Barnabas and Saul or Paul, would have been content to stay in Antioch and minister there and preach the Word and teach and shepherd that church and disciple. But there came a time when the Spirit of God said, send them out. And Paul and Barnabas went. Sent out by the Holy Spirit, they make a 16-mile trek down to the city of Seleucia on the coast. It's on the Orontes River. And from the city of Seleucia, looking out across the Mediterranean, you could see the island of Cyprus. It was about 60 miles away, and you could see the mountain ranges on the island of Cyprus on a clear day, because Cyprus has incredibly high mountains. And so you could see that from Seleucia. It's about a one-day trip from Antioch down to Seleucia. And when they get into Seleucia, Luke says that they board a ship and they sail for the island of Cyprus. On the back of your insert is a map that will help you sort of picture in your mind what we're dealing with and where we're at in the world. A 60-mile trip to Cyprus was about less than a one-day journey. And they're heading to the island of Cyprus, which has two major cities on it. The first is the city of Salamis, which is a commercial port. It's sort of right along the shipping lanes from Africa and Egypt all the way up to Asia Minor in the north. And so there's Salamis is a major commercial port. On the other end of the island, on the west coast of that island, is the city of Paphos. That was the capital of the city. That's where the Roman governor, the proconsul, lived and resided. And the apostle Paul with Barnabas, and you're going to see later John Mark, they set sail from Salamis over to Cyprus. They land in the city of... Sorry, I had it all wrong. I'm getting my islands and my cities mixed up. They set sail from Seleucia over to the island of Cyprus and they land in Salamis. And when they land in Salamis and their foot touches dry land, Luke tells us something. They began to proclaim the Word of God. That was Paul's message. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but as we've gone through the book of Acts, have you noticed that it doesn't matter who we're talking about, where we're talking about, when we're talking about, or what's going on, Luke always seems to mention this one common denominator, which is... The Word of God. doesn't matter whether we're talking about Philip or Peter or Stephen or Saul. It's the Word of God. And Luke's theme is, this is how the Word spread. Everything is about the Word. Everything is connected to the Word. The book of Acts is the story of a church who loved the Word, honored the Word, obeyed the Word, spread the Word, preached the Word, and taught the Word. That's what the book of Acts is all about. And it doesn't matter who Luke is talking about, because the spread of the church is not connected to any apostles, it's not Peter, it's not Paul, it's the Word. And it's the work of the Spirit of God in spreading the Word. So that was Paul's message. It says that they landed in Seleucia and immediately they began to proclaim the Word in the synagogues. The Apostle Paul walked into the synagogues, took their copy of the scroll, and when opportunity came, he stood up and he read from it and he began to preach from the Old Testament Christ. That was his message. He came into the synagogues and began to preach Christ from the Old Testament text. Let me ask you a convicting question. If you didn't have a New Testament and all you had was an Old Testament and you were faced with the challenge of presenting Christ and salvation in Him by faith alone, in grace alone, in Christ alone from just the Old Testament, how would you fare? No New Testament books. None of them have been written yet. All Saul has is the Old Testament scrolls and likely not all of them at that. Likely would have had a copy of Isaiah, a few of the minor prophets, the Psalms and most of the Pentateuch. But he wouldn't have had the entire Old Testament. They didn't have those in every synagogue. They had different scrolls from different books. How would you fare? You get Israel My Glory magazine. Have you ever heard of Israel My Glory? At the end of that magazine, it's put out by a bunch of evangelical um, Jews. Uh, Friends of Israel Gospel Ministry is the ministry that puts it out. Israel My Glory is their magazine. Very last page. I love that magazine. At the very last page, you open up the back cover, and there's always an article from Zvi. Z-V-I. Zvi. Zvi lives in Israel. And Zvi is, an, is a Christian. He's a believer. And he's kind of like a modern-day Apostle Paul. He goes into the synagogues and into the marketplaces and into the bus stations, and every opportunity he gets, he strikes up a conversation about Jesus Christ with all of these Jews who reject Jesus. And they won't even read from Isaiah 53. And his story, his little two-page testimony, is all about how he shares Christ with Jews who reject the Messiah and won't have anything to do with the New Testament, how he shares Christ with them from only the Old Testament. And he quotes from the Psalms and the Minor Prophets, and it's always amazing to see what he does. He can't use the New Testament because they won't acknowledge that. So he meets them on common ground, which is the Old Testament text, and from the Law and the Prophets, Zvi preaches Christ to Jews. It's unbelievable. I don't know how I would share Christ with somebody if I didn't have the New Testament. I could show them Christ in the Old Testament, but boy, it's sure convenient to have the Roman road, isn't it? Isn't it nice to have the New Testament text? Paul didn't have that. Paul hadn't written half the New Testament books yet. He just walked into the synagogue, unrolled Isaiah, read from Isaiah, and then he started to preach to the people arguing that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and He is the fulfillment of all that Isaiah wrote. And it didn't matter whether it was Isaiah or Moses or David or Zechariah, the Apostle Paul could unfold a scroll and he could preach Christ from that Old Testament. That's what he did. So confident was Paul in the ability of the Spirit of God to use the Word of God to save a sinner, that when he went into the synagogue, he proclaimed the Word of the Lord. Now, I want you to notice something right up front. This is going to be characteristic of Paul all the way through, so I'll mention it at the beginning, and and then I won't have to mention this again until the very end of the book. The Apostle Paul would go into a synagogue, and he did not preach his new revelation. He did not proclaim his experience or his testimony. He proclaimed the Word of God. Is that not sufficient? It certainly is sufficient. He didn't give new revelation. He didn't say, Oh, the Lord is talking to me right now. It's coming in. It's a bit fuzzy. Let me tune it in. Here it is. The Lord says to you today and then proclaim some revelation to him. That's the type of gobbledygook you see on television and Christian radio. That's not what Paul did. No new revelation did he give. He didn't proclaim his experience. Friends, what an experience he had had. He didn't even share his testimony. And what a testimony he had. On the way to Damascus and all that sin and baggage that he had, the bright light and hitting the dust and seeing Christ and hearing the voice of God and being forgiven for all of that sin and commissioned to service, Paul didn't proclaim that. And he could have whipped the crowds into an emotional frenzy by saying, I have seen the Lord and I have heard His voice and I saw the glory and I was blinded and I've been commissioned to service and I'm here to tell you what Jesus has done in my life. Paul didn't do any of that. What did the Apostle Paul do? Here's what the scripture says about Christ, the fact that he fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies concerning the Messiah, and he just proclaimed the word of the Lord. When I was in Bible college, we had a course that we took, and I forget the name of the course. It was that important. We had a course that we took, and one of our projects was to write out long form our testimony. What was your life like before Christ? How did you trust Christ for salvation? And what has happened since you trusted Christ for salvation. This is supposed to be four or five pages or something like that, and I tried to drum up all the sins of my past and wrote them all down. This is the type of a vile sinner I was, and this is how I trusted Christ, and this is what happened. And since then, God has done all this in my life and called me to Bible college, and I'm hoping someday I'll serve him in some sort of ministry in some church somewhere. And Went through all that four or five pages. Then the next step was to take that testimony and begin to outline it. Get your main ideas out and your points in A, B, and C and put those down with a couple neat illustrations, work in a couple of Scripture verses. And then we met in class and we began to share that with each other, practicing on students. Pretend that the student sitting next to you is a pagan and give them their testimony and share Christ with them. And this was intended, and the intentions were good, to equip us to tell other people about what Jesus Christ has done in our life. Now is that a bad thing? It's not inherently a bad thing to tell other people what Christ has done in your life But listen, that's not going to lead them to Christ. The Word will. Telling other people how bad of a sinner you were doesn't tell them how bad of a sinner they are. just tells them how bad of a sinner you were. And telling people what Christ did in your life does not show them their need to be accountable to a holy God who will call them on the carpet someday for their sin and hold them responsible for rejecting His Son. My testimony can't save anybody. It's powerless. What people really need to hear is who Christ is, what Christ has done for them, who God is, and their righteousness problem before Him. My testimony can't save anybody. Paul knew that. Hey, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter whether I was a self-righteous Pharisee or whether I had killed Christians. It doesn't matter how bad my life was, how much of a wreck I had made of it, or if I became a believer when I was four years old and have never known a completely sinful day in my life. It doesn't matter what your testimony is. It's powerless to save anybody. The Word is not. That's why Paul told Timothy, from your childhood you have known the sacred writings which are able to make you wise unto salvation through faith which is in Jesus Christ. Timothy, you don't need a testimony. You don't need an experience no matter how grand it is. You just need to share people with people the Word. He had the right message. He went into the synagogues and he began to proclaim Christ. And he shared with them the Word. Now you're thinking to yourself, wait a second, there's twice that the Apostle Paul shared his testimony. I know that. Later on in the book of Acts, there's two times where Paul talks about the Damascus Road and how he got saved and commissioned a ministry. Yes, but there's something interesting to note. Those are in legal context, not evangelism context. Paul both times is offering his defense against charges that were made against him and his ministry. And he's giving his legal defense before Felix and Festa and Agrippa. And in those legal defenses, he offers his testimony. And there is an evangelism element that's put in there and it's intended to share the Gospel with these people. But when he went into the synagogues, he didn't proclaim his experience. And listen, the Apostle Paul's testimony, you don't hold a candle to that. The sin that he had in his life, the self-righteousness, the waywardness, the pride, the arrogance, the greed, the hatred for Christ, and then his conversion and the subsequent ministry and the grace and forgiveness. I don't care how bad you've been. You cannot hold a candle to the Apostle Paul. Yet he never appealed to his ministry. He never appealed to his testimony or his experience to lead somebody to Christ because he knew it can't do that. Only the word can do that. So he had the right message. Now, I never did share with you what my advice was to my friend, did I? You know what I told him? Preach the word. It doesn't sound novel doesn't sound profound. It's not noble. It's not flashy. It's not extravagant. And it's not unique to me. If you think that that's profound, that those are not my words, I didn't come up with that and I could never have come up with that. I would never have devised that philosophy of ministry to save my life. It's Paul's. And he said to young Timothy, preach the word. And so I told this guy, just preach the word. You can't go wrong with that. That's what Paul told Timothy and that's what Paul did. They sailed to Salamis, he set foot on dry land, and the first thing he did is he went into the synagogues, and he began to proclaim the word of the Lord to those Jews. Second, I want you to notice that he started off not only with the right message, but also the right method. Why did Paul go to Cyprus? Do we have any record that the Spirit of God revealed to Paul and Barnabas that they were to go to Cyprus? We don't have that, do we? The Spirit of God said, set them apart for the ministry that I want them to fulfill. That's all that we're told. We're not told that the Spirit of God revealed an itinerary. I want you to go down to Seleucia and then to Salamis and then across the island of Cyprus and on over to Paphos and then I want you to sail north and go and hit Lyconium and Lystra. He didn't list all of those cities. The Spirit of God said, Paul and Barnabas, this is the ministry, go. So why did they choose Cyprus? We don't have any record that the Spirit of God gave them an itinerary. And listen... We don't have any record that Paul and Barnabas labored over the details of the plan. I don't think they said, Lord, is it your will for us to go north, or shall we go south? Lord, is it your will for us to head east, or shall we go by sea and head west? Do you want us to go to Cyprus? Give us a sign. If you want us to go to Cyprus, then let it rain tomorrow, and we'll know that that's what you want us to do. No fleeces, no signs, no implica- uh, uh, uh inward feelings or any of that. I don't believe the Spirit of God leads like that. The Spirit said, go. And I think Paul and Barnabas made a wise, strategic decision. They wanted to go to Cyprus, and so they sailed and they went to Cyprus. I think it's that simple. Now, why would they go to Cyprus? There are a few different reasons, I think. Number one, let me give you a few of them. I think they went to Cyprus because it was Barnabas' home territory. If you go back to chapter 4, verse 36, you'll see that Barnabas was a Cyprian Jew. He was born on the island of Cyprus. He was from the island of Cyprus. His family was likely still in the island of Cyprus. It had a large Jewish population on the island of Cyprus. So Barnabas would have been familiar with all of the towns, the geography, the culture, the custom, the location of the synagogues, probably who was in charge of the different synagogues and how he could have an inroads into the island of Cyprus. They start on familiar territory. It's familiar for Barnabas. Second reason I think they went to Cyprus and started there is because it's close. If they got to Cyprus and they know they needed more supplies or more people or they needed something from Antioch, they're only two days' journey from to Antioch. So they begin familiar. They begin somewhere where it's close. There's a large Jewish congregation there, which meant they had plenty of synagogues to choose from to go into and to plant these different churches and to preach Christ from the Old Testament in the synagogues. Fourth, it's a strategic decision. Listen. Starting on the island of Cyprus, they could go from east coast to west coast, and in a matter of a few weeks, they could plant churches in a major commercial port and a major capital. Hey, that's good thinking. From that commercial port, as merchants came in and merchants went out, the gospel could spread anywhere those merchants went. If you could get Christians to be sharing the gospel with the merchants and the commercial element in in, uh, Salamis you could have maximum bang for your buck. You could plant a church where they would have maximum influence and maximum reach all over the empire. But then in only a matter of a couple weeks, they could make their way all the way over to the west coast of Cyprus, and there they would plant a church in the capital city of the island. And listen, I think it's interesting to notice as we go through these missionary journeys that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas, or the Apostle Paul and Silas, they targeted commercial cities and capital cities. Wherever there was a large commercial city, Paul went there. Wherever there was a proconsul or a senator or an emperor or a king, Paul went there. Where he could get maximum bang for his buck. But there's a fifth reason I think they started with Cyprus. If you turn back to chapter 11, verse 19, I want you to look at that verse. Just one or two pages back in your Bible. Chapter 11, verse 19 Look what Luke writes for us. So then those who were scattered because of the persecution that occurred in connection with Stephen made their way to Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch. So this wasn't the first time that the gospel had made its way to Cyprus. There were other believers who had gone to Cyprus. When did they go to Cyprus? It was in connection with the persecution that started because of who? Paul. In connection with Stephen. So there were people from Jerusalem who when the Apostle Paul began to persecute the church, of course not an apostle at the time, when Saul of Tarsus began to persecute the church, they fled. And some of them went out to Phoenicia and to Cyprus. So the Gospel has already gone to Cyprus. There are already believers on Cyprus. And those believers had gone to Cyprus, likely shared Christ, and there were other believers there. So you would have an island, possibly with a scattering of people, possibly no organized church, no organized leadership, and the Apostle Paul targets Cyprus, I think, to go through the island of Cyprus and to make contact with those believers, to establish churches, to preach the Gospel, to gather together those believers. And how ironic would that be? The people who had left and gone to Cyprus were running from Paul. And now, just like in Antioch, Paul shows up, But this time it's not to slaughter Christians, but to shepherd Christians. And so the Gospel has already been there. It's familiar territory. It's close. The Gospel has been there. And it's some strategic decisions that the Apostle Paul makes. Why Cyprus? For those reasons. Now why the synagogue? Are we not talking about the Apostle to the uh, Gentiles? He's not the Apostle to the Jews. What's the Apostle of the Gentiles doing in a synagogue? Preaching Christ to Jews in the synagogues. This would become Paul's pattern. He says in Romans 1, 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the Gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. What? To the Jew first and also to the Greek. Paul took the Gospel first to the Jew, then to the Gentile. So when the Apostle Paul went into the synagogue, it was just a smart, wise thing to do. You go into the synagogue and you're instantly going to make contact with God-fearers, both Jews and Gentiles. And these are people whose hearts have been prepared for the Gospel by the Word of God. They're familiar with the Old Testament Scriptures. They're learned in the Old Testament Scriptures, and they have a copy of them in their synagogue in their hand. And if the Apostle Paul can plant a church in that synagogue, if he can get the synagogue to turn to Christ, he's got spiritual leadership, he's got teachers there, he's got a copy of the Scriptures and a place to meet. That's smart thinking. You want to plant a church? He didn't immediately go out into the roads the streets and the marketplace he went into the synagogues, as was his custom very first thing he did he went in on the sabbath day and started reasoning with the jews because they had a copy of the scriptures and there would be god-fearing gentiles in there as well not believing gentiles but god-fearers proselytes and so he would use that to start the church and to reach out from the synagogue to evangelize jews and gentiles So Acts chapter 13 says, They set foot, they began to proclaim the word of God in the synagogue of the Jews. Oh, and by the way, they had John as their helper. That's just kind of a little phrase that's in there. You should know that. They've got John Mark as their helper with them. It's rough terrain. They're going to need somebody to carry supplies, somebody to do laundry and dishes. John is likely a young man at the time, so he probably would not have been entrusted with many of the spiritual tasks but they need somebody to to help them out, to carry things, to do the work of the ministry. And John Mark is along with Paul and Barnabas. That's Barnabas' cousin. Now that's an important detail. It's a small detail, but it's an important one. You need to file that away in your mind for a couple weeks because it's going to come up again. Luke's going to bring that out. And there's a reason he tells us here. They started off with John Mark. That's all he tells us now. So they had John Mark with them as their helper. And when they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they found a magician, a false prophet, whose name was bar who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence. And this man summoned Barnabas and Paul, and he sought to hear the word of the Lord. So having begun in Salamis, they made their way through the island, going through the whole island, and I think preaching at every synagogue, every tent, every well, every city, every village, every person that would hear them or give them a hearing. And they work their way through the whole island, and finally they come to the west coast, to the city of Paphos, which is the... The, the capital of the island, and while they are there in witnessing and doing the same thing they had done throughout the island and in Salamis, there's a knock on the door. And Paul and Barnabas, wherever they're staying, answer the door, and there is somebody there sent by the proconsul, Sergius Paulus, to summon these men to stand before him. The proconsul would like to see you. And that's not an invitation that you turn down. You don't say... I'll have to check my day timer and see if I can come and talk to the proconsul. When the governor of the island requests a hearing with you, you go. This is likely an official, quote-unquote, official investigation into these two men. Having started on the east coast of the island and worked their way a hundred miles as the crow flies, all the way across the island, they would have got to the other side and the news of their arrival and the news of their message and the news of these people turning to Christ would have reached Paphos before Paul and Barnabas and John Mark had. So when they arrived, the proconsul says, I want to investigate what these men are teaching throughout my whole island. So it would be an official investigation. He wants to be appraised as to what this new teaching is, so he requests that they come in and have a hearing with him, and so they show up. Interestingly enough, archaeologists in the northern end, northern edge of uh, Cyprus somewhere, have unearthed a ancient Greek inscription with the title Quintus Sergius Paulus on it. And that's this man that Luke is mentioning here. He was actually The governor of the island of Cyprus, during the reign of Claudius, at the same time that the Apostle Paul and Barnabas would have made this journey, the proconsuls were appointed to one-year terms, and the reason they were only kept there for one year was to keep corruption down. So they would circulate them throughout the empire so that they couldn't get established in any one place and be corrupt. So he has a one-year term, and as the providence and the sovereignty and the grace of God would have it during his one year there, on the island of Cyprus, Paul and Barnabas come through. And it was in the court of Sergius Paulus, who Luke says to us is an intelligent man. It's in his court that Paul and Barnabas run into this Jewish magician, false prophet, Bar-Jesus. Bar meaning son of, Jesus meaning salvation or savior. So his name means son of salvation. Kind of an interesting name for a Jewish false prophet who would spend eternity damned for rejecting the gospel, isn't it? Son of salvation. Ironic. His name is Bar-Jesus, and Paul and Barnabas would have met him in the court of the king, in the court of the governor, Sergius Paulus, because Sergius Paulus likely would have had him employed. If he's a magician and he's working magic arts and incantations and stuff like that, he would have been an employee of the governor. And that's where Paul and Barnabas would have met him. That's what Luke implies. They ran across this man, Bar-Jesus, when they were summoned by Sergius Paulus to come, because Sergius Paulus wanted to hear the word of the Lord. Notice the second time Luke mentions that. That's how significant it is to him. He repeats it. This is what Paul taught. So he summoned Paul and Barnabas in, and they meet up with this Jewish false prophet. And Luke says that Sergius Paulus was an intelligent man. That is to say to us that even though he had this Jewish false prophet magician who was part of his court, part of his employment there in his palace, he was a man who was willing to listen to Paul and Barnabas. And he brought them in, and you're going to see next week what happens when two opposite worlds collide, because they're both standing there in the presence of the king. Bar Jesus and Barnabas and Paul together, and Paul and Barnabas begin to share Christ with Sergius Paulus, the governor. Now that just all is to set up this conflict that we're going to look at next week between Barnabas, uh, Paul, and Bar Jesus. Let me just take a couple of principles here before we close today that we can sort of draw in our, for our own attempts at and efforts to share Christ with unbelievers in our world. Here's the first one. Take every opportunity that comes to you. There are opportunities that you'll take and there are opportunities that you'll make. Paul and Barnabas made an opportunity. They went to Cyprus. They didn't wait for Cyprus to come to them. The Spirit of God sent them out and commissioned them and they went and they made opportunities. They went into the synagogues, they went to where unbelievers were, and they began to share Christ with those people, making every opportunity. But there are other opportunities in your life that are just going to roll over top of you, that are going to seek you out and find you. That's the opportunity that Paul and Barnabas had with Sergius Paulus. They didn't have to make that opportunity. That opportunity came to them. That was a God thing. Paul and Barnabas, I would like you to come and tell me what it is that you're telling everybody else. Man, what a fantastic opportunity. Like the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Those are the opportunities that just present themselves. Take both. In season, out of season, convenient, inconvenient. If the opportunity doesn't present itself, then make an opportunity to share Christ. Take every opportunity that you can get. Because friends, our job is to be witnesses and we are to proclaim the Word of God and testify to the Gospel of God's grace in His Word. The second, I want you to notice that Paul didn't change his message because of a different audience. You understand? What did Sergius, what did Paul give Sergius Paulus? The end of verse 7. The Word of God. Sergius Paulus wanted to hear the Word of God. What did Paul start off with to the Jews? The Word of God. He doesn't change his message. It doesn't matter whether the unbeliever is the governor of the island or some low-class Jews in a synagogue. It's the same message. And it doesn't matter whether it's a Jew or Gentile. It's the same message. It doesn't matter what the class is, what the ethnic background is. It didn't matter whether it was in a synagogue or in a palace. The message for Paul was the same. Listen, every sinner needs the same thing. And we have one message which is a cure-all. It cures... All people who will believe it and place their faith in Christ, regardless of their class in society, whether they are a serf or whether they are a king. The gospel that Paul preached to a beggar, to a lame man, is the same gospel that he would someday proclaim to Nero. No difference. It's the same message. See, here's the beauty of it. We don't have one gospel for blacks and one gospel for white people. We don't have one gospel for poor people and a gospel for rich people. One gospel for working class. One gospel for the professional class. We have one gospel. And it is an utter and complete cure-all. So you don't have to remember 15 different messages. You just have to remember one message. You're a sinner. Christ died for sinners. And he offers you salvation. And if you believe in him, he'll grant you forgiveness and eternal life. That's the message. Friends, you and I are going to stand before God and we have a righteousness problem. We have none. No righteousness. And He demands of us righteousness. Where do we get it? We can't manufacture it. We can't create it. We can't earn righteousness. Because we have none and we have no way of getting any. So Christ died not only to take our sins, but to give us His righteousness. So that as Jude says, He will present us faultless before His throne clothed in the righteousness of Christ, blameless in every way, He not only takes my sin, but He gives me something in place of my sin, something I desperately need to stand in the presence of God. The righteousness of Christ. That's the message we proclaim. So, take every opportunity that comes to you, and don't think you have to change the message because of the audience. Whether it's a Gentile governor in the palace, or a Jewish serf, In the synagogue, the message is the same. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and for the gospel of your grace, which is able to save the sinner, to change the life, and to transform our hearts from God-hating, rebellious sinners into Christ-loving, serving saints. It is all by your grace, and we can take no credit for it. We can only thank you for it and bask in it and be humbled by it. In Jesus' name, amen.